This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 405, March the 9th, 1998. This evening, Douglas Murray is again absent from us, and we pray that God be with him in these difficult days. He had hoped to make it, but apparently uh, some problems came up. Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushduni, and I will first of all discuss a subject that has been treated in the Chalcedon Report at times, again on easy chairs, but is very important and needs, according to more than a few of you, further treatment. This is the question of vouchers. Federal and state aid for Christian schools and homeschools. Now, the answer to that is a very quick and easy one in that it has been established for a generation or two that wherever federal funds go, their federal controls or state controls must follow. As a result, to receive any kind of funding from any kind of agency of state <clears throat> is to ask for controls. Now, <clears throat> the sad fact is that more and more churches are accepting controls. The present controls are largely in the form of aid to charitable and uh, mission work. A great deal of money is being poured into these areas by the federal government and most of the mainline churches. Now, the reason for this is that the federal government is quite ready to see the churches take over because it knows that in due time the more the churches take, the more dependent they will be on some agency of state for funding. And therefore, in due time, they can be controlled. The sad fact is that although this fact is very well known, the recipients are unwilling to face up to it. They have every kind of evasive answer as to why they will not be subjected to this type of control. At present, by and large, the attitude of the states and of the federal government is not particularly favorable to uh, aid to schools. However, as of late, there are changes occurring here so that uh, there are those in um, educational quarters in federal and state agencies who recognize the potential power of destroying a movement that is growing rapidly, that threatens to control the whole future of education. So it is important for us to consider afresh this subject the freedom of the Christian school 
from outside funding. Raj, I was just thinking as you were talking, I read some years ago one of Van Til's essays, actually I believe it was a, a sermon on antithesis and education. I'll never forget a line out of that. He said, if we're going to have a truly Christian education, we must break completely free from the educational philosophy that surrounds us. Yes. Uh, there can't be any compromise. And I think the whole idea of, of school vouchers, and of course today it's called, in some quarters, educational choice. Yes. You know, uh, which basically, uh, we will steal your money, extort your money, and give you a little money back to send it to, so you can send your children to a school not quite as bad as the Satan synagogues, that is the, the government schools. And unfortunately, many Christians are, are buying that idea. A lot of them, of course, complain about being, you know, doubly taxed. They're, they have to pay, pay to send children to the devil's schools and then have to pay also you know, for their own children's education. But the fact is, Christ, nobody ever promised Christian education would be easy. Mark's been a Christian school teacher and administrator for 13, 14, 15 years. I was for a number, number of years. It's hard on teachers. It's hard on administrators. It's hard on parents. But uh, we have a generation of, of Christians that, that want their cake and eat it too. And the fact is, it's, it's difficult. Christian education is not easy. We've got to rethink the foundations. And um, it's just difficult all the way around. It requires sacrifice. But we have, a, as I said, a generation of people that don't want to sacrifice these days. Rush, as you talked about the idea that where federal funding goes, there goes federal control. Uh, what really came to mind is a large fundamentalist university, actually, a uh, college. I think it was about, oh, 10, 12 years ago, maybe, maybe a little more. Got itself into a deep financial crisis and thought that a way out, of course, would be to appeal to federal funds. And the president told all the donors and supporters, oh, this doesn't mean we'll compromise. But lo and behold, before long, the university science department was required to teach evolution right along with creation, or of course they would lose their federal funding. And I think the school voucher idea, though nobody thinks about it this way now, really will lead to the same sort of thing. If there's anything that must be free, it's the teaching of our children. We know the church should be free, and a lot of people speak strongly for that, and they should, but not in addition to the church. Our schools have to be free from state and federal control, and they're not gonna be free from state and federal control if we get government subsidies. But as you said when you started, uh, I think it's a very simple answer. Are uh, school vouchers a good idea? And the answer is no. And the fact is we need to get the government out of the educational business. <clears throat> Rush, as you know, you spoke this year for the, I think it's called the Conference for Separation of School and State with yes. Marshall Fritz, a fine, fine organization, a number of outstanding speakers there. And of course, that's the goal. We really don't want to clean up the public schools. We want to get the federal government and the state government out of the educational business in the first place. I believe that long term, we are gonna do that. Uh, we're making inroads right now. People are waking up to the bankruptcy of, of, of statist education. Of course, one of the most wicked unions, I would probably say the most wicked union in the country is the NEA. That who just will cry foul at, at any, anything that would undercut their power or their funding or anything else. And uh, of course we've got to oppose them at every turn. But um, the short answer, Rush, as you said, is yes, educational choice or school vouchers are a bad idea. I'm sure Mark, with his experience 
and Christian education may have something to add to that. Well, you mentioned that it's uh, vouchers or some kind of subsidy for uh, um, Christian schools, basically on the idea that uh, we'll give parents some sort of money that would normally go to a public school. We will give them this amount of credit or a voucher that they can take to any school of their choice. And you mentioned that it's sometimes called um, <coughs> choice. Well, anything that borrows the uh, terminology of the pro-abortion movement, <laughs> you know there's something wrong with it philosophically, and uh, their idea of choice is, is far from removed from ours. There is a support in some Christian school circles for vouchers, and it's very dangerous and it's very disturbing. And it comes from a lot of different directions and for a lot of reasons. Some of them, I think, are tired of fighting, tired of worrying about budgets, and they think that this is a guaranteed way that we could make uh, several thousand dollars per student. And hey, if they really want something a little bit better, we'll get this check for so many thousands of dollars from the state of California, and we'll charge them a thousand dollars a year, or whatever, you know, a little bit something, and then we'll even have it even better. So this is, we're gonna have a top-notch school with this program and that program and this new building and that new building, and uh, we'll be in business. And they're seeing money, and they're, they're, they're not approaching this at all in the right direct, in the right perspective, because all they're seeing is dollar signs. A few years ago, California had an initiative like this on the ballot. And the idea was uh, that the amount of money spent on uh, public school students, different amounts were, were thrown around. It was yet really yet to be determined, but four to five thousand was sometimes thrown around. Once they determined how much was actually going around, this would be given to the parents in a voucher. They could take that to any school of their choice, and uh, the school would then turn those in. Now, any objections raised to this, it would all, was always said, oh, that's covered in this law. This is going to be an initiative in California becomes part of the state constitution. And it says, oh, the state can't control because it says specifically there that no control will come in. Every objection was met with, no, we've taken care of that. There will be absolutely no control over the schools involved. The problem with that kind of reasoning is uh, the people who write these don't put something that's quite objectionable. They're not going to put something about control in right. and try to appeal to uh, Christian schools or homeschooling parents. So it's in there, but all it has to do is go to one judge, and that judge says, well, this element is unconstitutional. Right. The element of uh, no control. Well, if it's state money, even if it's channeled through parents, it's, it's still subject to some control. If that alone is found unconstitutional, then you have vouchers with controls automatically. It doesn't take very much to overthrow this part or that part to say, well, that's unconstitutional because, let's face it, conservatives have been saying a long time, we can't have spending without accountability. We right. can't have spending without some kind of limits and control because people have been saying for years we, we have to control government spending. And so, with using a conservative argument, they could come back and says, no, that's not fiscal responsibility. The state has no authority to disperse funds without some sort of accountability. And whether they yes. call it controls or call it accountability, uh -huh. and suddenly you're, you're sucked in. What happens if, on promises of no controls, schools across a state 
or the country go with something like a voucher and there are many many different names for it will come in and different sure. names in every state if they go for it how do they back out now the christian school down the street saying oh we're a good solid christian school and we're getting four or five thousand dollars a month per student from or per year from the state and now if you want to pull out of that now you're going to compete with a christian school down the road that claims it has this, this, the same standards that you have right only they're getting money from the state yeah. It will destroy independent schools. That's right. And, and it's no longer a free market either. It's, that's right. Uh, it, it will all be government education. It will all be state-sponsored education. Mark, do you know, and we, we want to mention any names here, but do you know how the, the, the various Christian school organizations or state or national organizations have been dealing with it? I mean, have some of them been taking a stand against vouchers? Do they not take a stand? Do you... Vouchers haven't come up too much in California. It was They were badly defeated. I, I think it only got about 25% of the vote. Uh, or their, it was fairly low amount of the vote. It might, I think it was 25 or 30%. It, didn't, it wasn't particularly close. And this was, I'm thinking, four, five, six years ago, something like that, that it failed in California. It's likely going to come up again. Uh -huh. um, a lot of people are pushing it. A lot of people on the supposedly on the conservative side, they're approaching it as um, choice that give parents more control. From uh -huh. that perspective, if they did that with public schools, I think it would have a good effect. Parents uh -huh. in one community, one city, could say, "We don't like this school." Right. We're going to bring our money over to this other school because they have the programs that we think are best. I yeah. I think basically giving parents an option and making a school figure we've got to we've got to be a little bit more responsive to what the parents want. We've got yeah. to produce a better product. I think that but it would, would still be with redistributed tax money. That's right, and and I think that would serve to improve the the public schools a little bit and and force them to a little bit more accountability. But uh, it, it's not going to do anything that we want for the Christian schools. But uh, answering your question, yeah, the, Christian school the largest Christian school organization, um, when this thing was on the uh, table in California, they said they were not taking a stand on it. However, uh -huh. they were passing out literature on it uh -huh. and basically saying, we know many of our members are interested in this, therefore we're going to be passing this around. Although they claimed they weren't taking a position, but they were in effect promoting it. It was a favorable, favorable literature. Yeah, they were words. they were saying this is how this is, and I I believe there were even uh, some petitions being circulated, but there were certainly material to the that would benefit the promoters of the initiative. Hmm. I think what we need to recognize also is the very very prevalent dishonesty on the part of the state schools. For example, it was. About 1928, when the look-say method was introduced, at that time it was a cure-all for all educational problems. Instead, it became the source of problems, so that from uh, a very, very high rate of literacy, we have steadily gone downhill since then. Now, ever since then, there have been periodic ostensible reforms, a return to phonics and this and that, and it's all been dishonest, illusory. The same is true whether it's in uh, the teaching of phonics or of English or of math. Periodically, a reform 
is propounded, which supposedly gets rid of what is objectionable. But it's only that which was objectionable under a different name. So we have to accustom ourselves to the fact that we have not been dealt with honestly in this area. Yes. We have not been given an accurate picture of what the school picture is. In federal uh, data, it has come out on uh, rather involved studies that uh, 76 million graduates of our schools are functional illiterates. That's unprecedented in American history. Why should we join uh, a system that is bankrupt when we have been creating a superb Christian school movement? It really is amazing, Rush, that people continue to support it and often equate uh, public education with patriotism. I've met them, if you pull your children, you know, out of out of the public schools, you're not patriotic, or you know, these are our schools, our nation's schools. Um, I really think that's obviously a dangerous way of of reasoning, and mm -hmm. uh, it, and if anything, the uh, the public schools are are at war with uh, the right sort of patriotism because they're in essence socialistic and atheistic and and all that sort of thing. Another point I wanted to ask, Rush. I'm just some, this is something I'm totally unaware of. Are homeschoolers vulnerable to this voucher plan? And what's the, what's the angle there? Yes, <coughs> they are. And in uh, one or two countries, there's already a move, which may have succeeded already, to extend uh, state controls to uh, homeschoolers. They have begun by providing them with their textbooks. Mm. One of the problems whereby people are deluded is that educational advance is so commonly associated with technology. Yes. And we regularly are shown all the computers row upon row in the state schools as though this represents uh, a high state of education. Now, there's a difference between what the computer is and what the mind of the student <laughs> is. So that uh, a student may learn to use a computer. That does not mean he is better educated. We've had too much of this sort of thing. I recall when I was uh, a student one of the things associated with a dramatic advance in education was films. And uh, schools everywhere were buying films. Class after class was buying films so that uh, the chemistry class or a physics class would have a film projector to show films of certain mm -hmm. things. And you saw a great deal of what was going on in physics or in chemistry or whatever the subject was. But this did not mean that you necessarily learned anything. You were entertained. And uh, now, of course, that's no longer a part of, say, the high school curriculum or the grade school curriculum. Today, the wave is computers, of course. Yes, it's yes. computers. 
If it isn't one thing, it is another. Nothing can take the place of the child learning. That's right. Absolutely. I'd like to go back to what you mentioned about homeschoolers. There are ways that they're trying to suck homeschoolers in, and they are doing it fairly successful. I don't know to what extent they're, they're bringing Christian homeschoolers, but they are bringing homeschoolers into the public school fold. Public schools are creating their own homeschool programs, and there mm. are a number of different types of them. Uh, for instance, in this county alone, the county itself has its own homeschool program. So you're not actually under a specific school or school district. It's the county set up a separate homeschool program. And of course, that uh, because most of the education takes place at home, but the county gets to keep this money, the, uh, mm. it actually pays for itself. It, it's because there's not a lot of overhead when the child doesn't have yeah. to go to school. Well, they have to. They meet once a week or something, and, and it's fairly easy. There is another type of program. I can't recall what its name, but it's going to have a different name in every uh, every state. In in which um, you don't even have to use state materials. You are under the auspices of the school, and the school gets revenue just as though you were going to the school. The school gets the revenue, uh -huh. and all they do is monitor what you're doing, and they'll give you a test, the student a test periodically to say, yes, you are up to our standards or not, and if you want to come to our PE program, you can, or if you want to come to our computer class, you, you may. So what, again, it costs them very little, and it's actually a revenue-creating thing, because yeah. at four or $5,000 per student, 20 students, you've got $100,000 yeah. back into your school. Yeah. That you wouldn't have had otherwise, and, and you, you really to, better to pay a teacher. Yeah, you, twenty students, one one teacher. You, yeah. you, you pay one teacher. Meanwhile, you've got a hundred thousand dollars. You're not going to pay that teacher a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So there are a number of ways they are trying to pull homeschoolers into the the state system, and they're always doing it in a sense. Hey, we recognize the need. Some people want alternative forms of education. We're here to help you. We're here to serve your mm -hmm. needs. Uh mm huh. -hmm. I think we've all got to remember the centrality of childhood education in any society. And the reason that liberals and socialists and, and uh, non-Christians and Bible deniers want to grab children, especially astute liberals, at a young age is because they can mold their minds at that age in, in socialist ideology. And I, I think the greatest battles that we face are essentially the battles in education. Yes. <coughs> Back in the 1920s, there was a definition of a very good school that was quite prevalent. It was a simplistic definition. It was this. Mark Hopkins at one end of a log and a student or students at the other end. Now that was getting it down to the basics. An outstanding teacher, Mark Hopkins, and a student or students who were ready to learn. Now, as I said, that's a bit simplistic, but it's much better than the definitions today which identify it in terms of all kinds of technology. Yes. All kinds of uh, uh, classroom uh, additives, yes. uh, computers, whatnot. Yes. So that uh, we have now switched from stressing quality to quantity. Yes. I thought of another thing, Rush. Remember I talked to you the other day about this. I, there was a little article in the paper about, <coughs> excuse me, 
uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, actually buying a very large complex in Northern Virginia and turning it into a, an Islamic day school. And there was uh, justifiable outrage in the community. But what really struck me about that is the hypocrisy. Many of these same people don't recognize the dangers of the religion of humanism and secularism you know, in their own public schools there. Yes. Uh, which are just as dangerous uh, as, as, the, uh, as we all know, the, the danger of the false religion of Islam. I think, it's, I think parents need to recognize the uh, rush, as you've pointed out so powerfully. In fact, I think you even started out in intellectual schizophrenia, probably. The inescapably religious nature of all, all education. And we constantly come back to that, and that's where the antithesis really lies. Well, we have uh, a battle on our hands in this country because education is inescapably religious, not technological. Right. And we have shifted the whole emphasis in education. And as a result, we're unable to confront the problems, recognize what they are, or deal with them honestly. Well, I agree with all that, and I would mention also that <clears throat> uh, if you listeners do not have uh, Rush's books on this topic, Philosophy of, a Christ of the Christian Curriculum and Intellectual Schizophrenia and Messianic Character, please obtain them. I think, uh, uh, I don't think Intellectual Schizophrenia is in print. I believe the others are in it print. It will be before will be too very long. Yes, please get those because they're groundbreaking works. And of course there are others, but, but those are just outstanding works on this on this topic. It is interesting that when I wrote Intellectual Schizophrenia, it gained more favorable attention than any other book I've written. In fact, it was about the only book that <laughs> gained any uh, national attention. But uh, it went so much against the current of things yes. that uh, it was neglected. One thing I remember about that book, Rush, I read it years ago, of course, was the small chapter on, uh, oh, I can't remember the exact title, but it was something like The Dangers of Sunday School yes, or something. The Menace of the, the, menace Sunday, school. Of the Sunday School. Yes, it was just, it was, it was just outstanding. And the book was very prescient in, in many ways. It's really remarkable that people today are saying many of the same things, but Rush, hardly anybody back then was saying that. Yeah. Well, the point I made then was, of course, the inescapably religious character of education. And this is what people are unwilling to face up to. Every school has a religion. If it isn't humanism, as in the state schools, it's going to be some other religion, and we believe it should be Christianity. In the Western world, the whole impetus for universal education has come from Christianity. And basic to that has been the belief in universal literacy in order that everyone might learn to read and understand the Bible. Now. With the loss of that centrality of the Bible, there's no longer any feeling that people need to know how to read in order to understand right. the Bible. That's right. As 
I have pointed out on various occasions, education in the past has been uh, restricted, it has been technological, it has been the education of a class. In antiquity, most people did not have literacy. But this did not mean you did not have highly advanced architecture, engineering, astronomy, and other sciences. Yes. But it was not a need for universal literacy because there was no common faith in a common book. When we go back to antiquity, for example, we find highly advanced engineering and architecture and more. We find that uh, some builders moved the stones weighing a hundred tons or more great distances in order to use them in construction, as in Egypt. How they did it, we do not know. It would be a serious error to assume that uh, because they did not have universal learning there, then they did not have a great deal of knowledge. Their technical knowledge was obviously great. Now, they did not see a need for universal literacy. It was a specialized skill. And it would still have remained a specialized skill but for Christianity, but for the biblical faith. Universal education began among the Hebrews. From there, it spread through all the world through Christianity. The need to know the Word of God. Only when you had the Word of God, God the omnipotent, God the all-righteous, the all-perfect one, speaking an infallible word to man. Was it necessary for all men to know how to read and understand the word of God? It is the greatest single revolution in the history of the world. It was not that before that reading was not important, but it was a specialized skill. Now it's a universal skill. And apart from a thoroughly biblical faith, a belief that the Bible is the Word of God, you're going to lose the stress on universal literacy. This is why, because we are the people of the book, wherever we go in the world, we teach people how to read and write. And the result is we reduce their languages to an alphabet. We revolutionize those cultures. In and of themselves, many of those cultures have a great deal of education, as, for example, China. China had literacy very early for a specialized class. It had a very aristocratic type of alphabet, or language, written language, ideographs, and it required a vast amount of study and learning to be able to read. Now, with the modern era, 
there were Chinese scholars who regretted the uh, transition to a Western-type culture and the emphasis on moral literacy, the reduction of the Chinese uh, ideographs to a limited number so that uh, more people could learn how to read and write. It was an aristocratic skill. It will be that again. And when in the 1950s, educators here in the United States began to say that most people in the schools in our culture were the nonverbal type, they did not need literacy. It was because they had abandoned Christianity. They felt the, the, the no need for a universal revelation to all men. And until we come back to a belief that God has spoken, he has given us an infallible word, everyone needs to know that word, and therefore literacy is an imperative for all people without exception. We will not have a good standard of education. This is why the mainline churches although they early were in the parochial school movements, abandoned it. They did not feel the need for teaching everyone how to read and write. They stressed an aristocratic type of education as they became more and more liberal or modernistic. And I know that one man who invested a great deal in furthering an old-fashioned Christian school was criticized by many of his friends in the mainline churches who felt that uh, a school of that caliber should be only for uh, children of the superior classes. It's interesting, Rush, as you were talking, I was thinking about a number of churches today, and not only professedly liberal churches, even some Presbyterian churches are going to... Uh, mime and dance as a replacement yes. for, for preaching. Yes. Because it's, of course, based on the Word of God, verbally based, mm -hmm. and they want to be visually based. I've mentioned uh, on several occasions on the Easy Chair tapes the very frightening portent but the, of, of the fact that our very society is, is being changed from a verbal-oriented to a visual-oriented mm -hmm. society. And to a certain degree, the, the computers themselves uh, enhance, that, uh, enhance that problem. Our, uh, one of the leading uh, newspaper, in fact, probably the leading newspaper now, national newspaper in the country, USA Today, a lot of people aren't aware of this, it's designed to look like TV. Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of nice graphics and all sorts of color and a little text here. But as you well know, some of you that are, oh, even in your 50s and 60s, the newspapers a few years ago would seem remarkably dull and drab compared to all of these yes. modern newspapers, and the stories would seem to be exceedingly complex. Um, it's, it's, it's very frightening. Um, the only advantage that I see to that at all for Christians is that we're training up warriors uh, in Christian schools and home schools of, of strong readers, whereas for the most part, the, the government schools are training up people that can be easily, or children that can be easily propagandized and uh, are very vulnerable to dictators uh, and, and government elites because they're given to a, a visual orientation and governed by sight rather than by reading.
Well, as we deal with this subject of the schools and vouchers and the future of the school, we need to recognize that uh, the centrality of the Bible is basic to Christian education. If the Bible is not central for us, then Christian education will not be as important. This is why the clearer the Reformed faith that we have, the stronger our Calvinism, the greater will be our emphasis on education. That's right. This is why the uh, Calvinistic schools very early became strong devotees of uh, Christian schools. Rush, I think a real danger of a lot of Christian schools today and the ones that are not Calvinistic is simply using public school or secularized textbooks yes. and sort of slapping a Christian label on them or, or that sort of thing. As you pointed out in philosophy of the Christian curriculum, to have biblical schools doesn't mean to just have Bible class. It means to rethink every, yes. uh, every discipline in terms of, of the Word of God. And, of course, your work in Chalcedons has been central in that. In fact, for on a scholarly level, the book um, oh, we put out in the 70s, you know, sort of the Feshrift for Van Til, uh, Philosophy of... of uh, the Christian... Uh, oh, um, of... Uh, what's it called? Christian Education... The philosophy of Christian Education or... Foundations. Foundations, Foundations of, of Christian of, Scholarship. Of Christian Scholarship does that in several fields, and, of course, you're work does also and there's more work of course to be to be done in that field but I want to urge those of you listening Christian school administrators and, and homeschooling parents and others it's not enough just to sort of borrow the premises of of the humanists and and baptize them we've got to rethink all of these areas and that's what we at Chalcedon are, are dedicated to doing well we hope we'll pick up more and more supporters in this cause. It has not been popular. And there is funding for all kinds of uh, groups in uh, the country, all kinds of causes, but not one that stresses the centrality of the Bible as basic to all of life. This is what we have done. We have tried to get people to rethink every area of life and thought in terms of the Word of God. And this, they are not ready to go right down the line with That's us. Right. They can be very hostile and critical, and we've had to work hard for the support we have. And we are grateful to those of you who do support us faithfully. It's been an uphill task, believe me. Yes. Well, Rush, I think to a lot of them, their whole objective in getting out of the public schools or getting into Christian education is simply to avoid, you know, the evils of, of public education. Yes. And of course, that that is an aspect of it, but fundamentally, our, our approach has to be positive and not negative, and that is inculcating into children what the Bible itself teaches and uh, biblical Christianity is. And that, I think, is what a lot of people aren't willing to do, so they have nothing more than glorified private schools you know, with the name Christian, or in a homeschool situation, the, the same thing can obtain. Um, 
And I think that's one reason that Chalcedon's work is, is not only valuable but so unique. Who else is doing that? Virtually nobody else is doing that. And you're right, we don't have a lot of support for that and we need to instill that vision in people uh, so, that, uh, so that we can get the support. We've had people ask us, I think Mark and I were just talking, uh, oh maybe it was a conference call recently, I can't remember, about developing a Christian curriculum. And of course you delivered lectures on philosophy of Christian curriculum, we published that. But of course all that requires money. I mean we just can't sit down and do it, it requires people and money. So if we have the support to do that, and if those of you listening, if you have a burden for that and are willing to support that, uh, we'd go full steam ahead on projects like that. That's exactly what, uh, what we're committed to doing, training up uh, young warriors for the faith who have Christianity, a biblical Christianity instilled, but it's, it's not an easy task. Well, we are faced with a critical problem in this country. We have a crisis, the roots of which are religious. And yet we're coming up with every kind of answer except the religious. I was startled the other day to read how easily money has come to all kinds of groups that uh, set out to do something, often commendable, often uh, relatively minor, and yet, when you want to meet the problems of our world head-on, there's very little support. And uh, I'm grateful to God that we have had the measure of support we have, have been able to come thus far. I wish we were much further along. I know I am approaching the end of my life. After all, at 82, you don't have time stretching out indefinitely. But we've started something by the grace of God, and I do not think it will end. Well, it's interesting because Mark and I were just talking with one of our new Chalcedon men, Brian Abshire. We're committed to of course, continuing that work. Speaking of your age, Rush, that reminded me, since we're talking about education, you mentioned to me about a month or two ago a, just a delicious anecdote about, uh, I think back in the 50s, you were preaching or lecturing about the need for Christian schools. and Relate that to us, if you will, the response oh, yes. that you got. It was uh, primarily to a large gathering of ministers, and uh, one minister immediately got up and objected that I was going to lead people astray from uh, saving souls, that uh, the state schools were doing a fine job of teaching our children, and uh, I was going to sidetrack the Christian church with my emphasis on Christian schools. Well, the last time that happened was in the mid-70s, but uh, it was once a commonplace attitude. And by the grace of God, that is rarely the case today. There are an increasing number of uh, Christian schools and home schools in evidence all around us. 
their number will only increase unless the state succeeds in capturing them. What we must appreciate is the power of our movement. Yes. There are millions of parents behind it. They are taxing themselves to pay for schooling for their children as well as uh, school funds to the state. And it isn't easy for them. Very few of them have much in the way of means. It's a marvelous thing. And now to see some of the leaders in the movement trying to lead them into asking for state support is very sad. It's disheartening. I hope it fails. But uh, at every point of this uh, battle, we're going to have to face enemies both within and without, both within the Christian community and now sometimes within the school community. People who don't agree with us in our approach or who feel we are uh, too uh, demanding of the students, who want uh, a laxer attitude taken. After all, they're very used to laxity in the state schools, and they seem to feel that the uh, uh, Christian schools should have it also. But. If we stand firm and we resist these tendencies, by the grace of God, the future is ours. Rush, in addition to school vouchers, what do you perceive to be some other dangers confronting Christian schools, Christian homeschools that, that um, we, we need to be wary of? There are many dangers and probably some we're not aware of yet that are down the road. We need to recognize that in this world every faith shall be tested. So that uh, there is a testing for every faith and for every movement. Clearly, the Christian school cannot have a future if it does not have a strong faith. It has to stand firm on the word of God as the very word of God. It has to stand firm on the necessity for insisting on the priority of the word of God in the Christian schools. Our purpose is not only to give the students a better education, it's to give them a godly education, yes. a Christian education. Yes. And at this point, we need to recognize that we will not have God's blessing unless he's first in our purpose. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, Scripture says. Mark, what do you, how would you answer that dangers confronting maybe Christian schools and homeschools that we need to be wary of? There are a lot of them. Just about every area you can you can fail in because every area of a, a Christian school or 
is a challenge. It's a challenge to um, continue and to strive for excellence. It's very difficult to let standards slide because you have new students constantly coming into the Christian school who are coming from the public schools. They're Success, each successive wave of students that come from the public school seems like they have their own problems and the standards uh, are lower and lower. Behavioral standards, we have more behavioral problems now with kindergartners than, than we did a few years ago. It's quite noticeable. It used to be that kindergartners were pretty easily molded and you rarely had a problem with, you know, one that was squirmy that couldn't be controlled. But there, there's so very little discipline in our culture and in our homes that um, all these things do come in and it's easy to try to let down uh, our standards academically, spiritually. So many people come to the school for various reasons now. Christian schools don't have the, the aura of peculiarity that they did a few years ago. A lot of parents who will willingly send someone to a Christian school for reasons completely other than the Christian faith. Yeah. And this is always a challenge because it then it, it becomes you not only have to to make the parents understand what you're all about and why you do things the way you do, but the children don't often aren't coming from the right direction either. So it's 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 a constant ongoing challenge. Vouchers to me are more of a way of a lot of people saying we're tired of the struggle we quit. Let's get the check and that'll solve our money problems and it, it, it seems to me a, a way of people who are tired of struggling with budgets saying this will solve our, will be financially solvent, will be successful because we're financially solvent if we get money from the state. And uh, they don't approach it philosophically because they see the dollars and cents and, and they just say well let's, let's, let's take the promises that are, as they're given, let's accept the promises at face value that there won't be any controls and we can do whatever we want. And it's not going to happen. You bring up an interesting point. Mark, in my experience in Christian education, we didn't so much have a problem with students as we did with parents. <laughs> Was that, is that a fair assessment? Uh, Generally speaking, and if you, uh, anybody who works in a school with a parent-run a parent -run school or parent boards, um, I pity them because it's hard enough teaching children, but t teaching parents is, is far more difficult because yeah. they're not willing to learn. Yeah, I don't think this is a place to go into anything about our school, but I simply want to say this. Mark has done a superb job of educating the parents because in a current uh, decision facing the parents, they have responded in a way that I think has surprised Mark, but not me, because I know what they have done there at the school yes. with students and parents. Yes. And this is important in any and every school. You have to teach the parents as well as the children. Yes. Rush, I want to go back to some of those anecdotes. A lot of our listeners don't know that in the 70s you were a preeminent witness at a lot of the church-state trials. Are there a couple of, of uh, <clears throat> particular episodes that stand out in your mind from those years? Because the trials, for the most part, are over now, and we've been largely successful on that front. 
But as you, as you look back, as you said, you're almost 83 now. As you look back, oh, 20, 25 years ago, how do you look on those years uh, specifically with reference to the, to the testifying and the church-state conflicts? Well, I testified in the latter 70s and early 80s in quite a number of states, in some states, several times. The trials were interesting, first of all, because the judges were so nervous and upset. Uh, unless a trial is a sensational murder trial, the courtroom is generally empty. So the judges are able to be arrogant, arbitrary, and very, very ungodly, and nobody knows. But suddenly, the courtroom was full of people. In some instances, in very notable trials, there would be people on the courthouse steps praying or singing a hymn. Every seat would be taken. There would be crowds in the hallways. And this was important. Wherever the crowds appeared, the judges were overawed, even intimidated, <laughs> very nervous. And that was important. It's uh, carried a message. It isn't a sensational murder trial only that attracts people. It's an issue dealing with the faith. That was very impressive. Then another aspect of those trials that was impressive was that they did get uh, better than average coverage. The daily papers carried them. Some national news uh, magazines had items about them, and that was all to the good. It uh, alerted the country to what was going on. A judge was not giving a decision in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so many decisions are rendered to an empty courtroom. I have been in uh, courtrooms where there have been important uh, trials underway involving serious crimes. And unless it's a sensational case, there's no one there. And if there are five or ten, it'll be quite a crowd. And most of the time, they're either uh, friends of the plaintiff or uh, participants or those related to witnesses. So suddenly the judges were intimidated, literally intimidated. And that was to the good. Too much of what uh, transpires in civil government today takes place in empty courtrooms, empty legislative chambers. So it was a manifestation of faith and of concern and very important. Well, I see our time is almost over. Do you have a last word, either of you, that you'd like to add? 
No, I think we've covered vouchers pretty well. They're bad. Stay away from them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. No.